Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as expert insight analysis on all the topics you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry, and with me is Duncan Castles, who's appeared for the first time from his darkened room since Manchester United beat Spurs on Wednesday night. And also with us today, I'm pleased to say, Spanish football expert, TV presenter, podcaster, author, filmmaker. Calm down, calm dandy down. Dandy extraordinaire. One and only Graham Hunter. Welcome back to the pod, Graham. Hello. That's nice. Now, the uh, managerial heads have been rolling in the Premier League uh, yet again this week when Marcus Silva was sacked by Everton on Thursday. Uh, Duncan, I believe you got some news on a possible successor for uh, Silva at Goodison Park. Yes, this is um, Vitor Pereira, um, Portuguese coach, who most recently has been working at Shanghai um, SIPG. His contract there is about to be terminated. He's already made a decision to leave the club. This has been in play with Everton for over a week now. It's a name that was proposed by Kia Jarabshin. Uh, we've told you in the podcast that Jarabshin is very close with both Farhad Moshiri, um, the sort of front person of the current ownership of Everton, and with Bill Kenwright, uh, who represents the, the past of the club. I'm told that Pereira has already spoken with um, Everton's board about the position. Um, obviously, Marco Silva is gone. Uh, we flagged that up to you um, several months ago that his, his job was in jeopardy and that Everton had been looking at a, a range of potential successors. Um, with Jurabjian's blessing, um, Pereira is obviously in a good position um, to convince the board that he's the right man to take over from Silva. But I believe they will look at a number of other candidates. Um, we've told you previously that there is a strong interest uh, in Mikel Arteta. Um, Ian, you had the story, I think, a couple of months ago now that uh, Max Allegri had been sounded out um, about whether he'd be interested in that job. Obviously, quite an optimistic phone call, that one, on behalf of Everton. And I think Allegri, in the last 24 hours, has confirmed what we have been telling you in the podcast for quite a long time, that he intends to see his sabbatical year and is continuing to work on his English to get it to the level where he can get that you know, top-level Premier League job um, should the right opportunity appear for him. Graham, I believe you uh, you certainly interviewed Michael Arteta uh, for the pod, for your GH podcast, the big interview, is that correct? Uh, we, we were waiting on a date. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I've met and, <laughs> and spoken to Arteta, but yeah. why, why, why do you mention him in this context? Uh, I just wondered if, if you, what your opinion on, is he ready to become a number one, having obviously served his apprenticeship under Pep Guardiola at Manchester City as number two? Don't you think, both of you, that we, we only truly learn that once um, somebody who's been part of a coaching team takes the step up? You can estimate and you can draw on traits, you can draw on conversations. I think that the, the step forward to... Soul control has, as much as the the post has changed, it has echoes back to the difference between a manager and a coach because modern clubs might have 
responsibilities split between departments and there's probably now more support for the man who's in charge of the first team than there's ever been. But you still need to assume a whole new side of your personality um, in order to manage up, um, to manage a group, as in sole control and or sole responsibility. And you have to manage outwards too, principally with the media. Sponsors, I think, is not a, a, a massive problem for anybody equipped to be in, in range of this type of post. So my, my faith in Arteta as um, a man of substance or um, his leadership, um, his ambition um, would be near absolute. I think that um, because he's a, a relatively private relatively taciturn man um the media duties while well within his scope media duties of being you know the the, the head honcho anywhere um they're not like um your man at, um fulham um who, who admits that while he can do it he really doesn't particularly enjoy it i mean there are some who come out and are all spiky and although they you know, they don't love dealing with the media. It, it brings out the competitive part of their, their character and they can handle that. Um, but if I was completely honest, my question back to you would be, why would Arteta do that? I, 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 can't, I can't find a reason. He well, is, he is he's in line to succeed at City. Um, not anointed, not definite. But I, I stick to the phrase, he's in line to succeed. At City, as and when Pep Guardiola moves on, he'll be a leading candidate, if not the leading candidate. Um, there's a there's a there's a clarion call for him to come to Arsenal, where he very nearly began the season. Um, now, whether he would even choose that, given the malaise at that club, I, I'm not sure. I, I think Everton have got no hope of attracting him, and, and if I were him, I, w- I wouldn't accept the call. Would you accept Do you think he would accept Arsenal, though, given the current chaos? If, if your ego was, if your ego was sufficiently strong to say, I can't simply um, correct the on-pitch flaws, I'm going to be either immune to or able to uh, correct the malaise at the club, and that's 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 what it is. Then it, it, it's a different question. It's an entirely different question. Um, from Everton, they're related in that there's a club malaise at Everton too. It's quite, it's absolutely standout that when you get um, managers of quality routinely being sacked, when you get a, a squad of of worth underperforming, and um, I don't think any of us expected to see, for example, Arsenal in the top four, and I don't think any of us expected to see Everton, you know, being punchy at a fifth or sixth this season. Each of those two clubs are dramatically underperforming. Um, the whole is less than the sum of the parts. That's been a pattern. Uh, and for that, you have to look at causes beyond um, the quality of the coaching and management on a daily basis. You can definitely say the buck stops there. You can definitely say to the men who are being dismissed, you haven't done enough or you are you weren't the right man in these circumstances, that's fine. They all get paid off handsomely 
they all accept it as uh, Norman Stanley Fletcher did as uh, an occupational hazard. So fine. But if I think what you two try to do on a regular basis is draw back uh, and put a magnifying glass to the broader problems. And Arteta would have similar questions to ask himself um, moving um, south to London and, um, and, and addressing what's wrong at Arsenal. Um, but not only are the resources greater, the squad at Arsenal is, is better than that he sees at Everton. The room for manoeuvre is greater. Uh, and I think there's going to come, I think, there's going to come at Arsenal a state of urgency which can engender um, a proper assessment left, right and centre uh, by those who have authority there, which can help act, act top coach at the right time address not simply what's wrong on a daily basis but what's wrong institutionally now whether that time is right now or, or will be this season or in the summer and whether Arteta wants to take that risk I, I don't know I don't profess to know but he, he would have a it, it, if there's a podium right now let, let's not be stupid about this if there's a podium right now the gold medal position for Arteta is to stay at City the silver medal position is to risk at Arsenal and decidedly the bronze medal position, which you haven't trained all your life and, and forgone the, the privileges of having fun in order to coach this ever. So, Graham, he, he won't take the wooden spoon at Everton. He got close to taking Arsenal last time around, and if the, the word around that um, near appointment is correct, he was quite disappointed to lose the job to Emery at the last minute. If City is the is the gold medal, which I think your analysis there has to be correct, how long do you think he has to wait for the gold medal to be hung around his neck? Well, um, again, I, I don't know. And I think we're we're foolish to, to try and um, predict Pep Guardiola because he is a man who's cut from different cloth. Um, I'll say one thing. I'm... I'm just by chance, I know um, what happened with Emery going into Arsenal um, in that he joined an agent that he hadn't been closely associated with before. The agent very much at the last minute put Emery's name in very strongly to Arsenal and was surprised when they, were, they just sort of, like a salmon in the tay, took mm-hmm. to hook, line and sinker and went, yeah, we'll have him right now. And the whole operation happened in double quick time which leaves your assessment of what Arteta must have felt um, right on point because um, if you're looking at Arsenal right now, this wasn't your question, Duncan, but if you're looking at Arsenal right now, you don't simply think, well, they they didn't take me or they rejected me last time. You look at how close you went and how unsure the authorities at Arsenal still were that when Emery came in, they just went holus bolus and went, okay, that's brilliant, winner. Just taken. So that doesn't say too much for their um, the radar that they had out about Emery and whether he was uh, attractable or attractive or pertinent. And and I thought at the time he he would be. There was other points to say about Arsenal. But going back to Duncan, uh, I'll say this about Pep Guardiola. Traditionally, when he says I want to see out my contract, traditionally that will be true. Traditionally. Um, when he says he has an outstanding objective, which is to retain the Premier League and make them champions of Europe, 
it, traditionally it will be true. There are times when um, his own capacity to uh, burn the candle so heavily um, with his intensity of demands on those around him and himself, sometimes that just reaches a natural point whereby he he has to change. And that may come. I have said to people who are dedicated to City who have asked me the question over and over again, my opinion is that we need to take extremely seriously this point he, he continues to make about, I want to be at a club where it is demanded of us weekly by fans and sponsors and owners and media that we win the Champions League. He wants that um, culture change, that atmosphere, to be dominant at City, for them to 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 just adjust. And listen, as, as Scots who grew up, it's each of the three of us being told that the be-all and end-all, the end of the world was to beat England in the home internationals every season. And then we would meet some grown-ups who went, there's a bigger world than that and there are more important things for Scotland to think about. Can we win under 21 championships? Can we develop um, players at youth level that don't just get picked off by Division 2 clubs in England? Can we develop players who lead Scotland to qualify through a group in, in international tournaments, etc.? The same kind of analogy is, is worth putting at City. They worked to beat United after all the years of very glory. Then they did want to be champions. And Guardiola is asking them for an atmosphere to grow where it's it feels like Bayern Munich or Juventus or Real Madrid or, or Barcelona, where literally there is a thirst, an absolute driving thirst to dominate Europe. And he doesn't find that right now, either in what's demanded of them, what the culture is, what the mentality is, how many seats are full or empty in Europe, what kind of atmosphere there is in the build-up to Champions League games. And I don't think he's he's virulently critical. I think he's he's in the difficult position of trying to orchestrate a culture change. And you, you can't do that by orders or by salary or, you know, you're reaching into amorphous groups. And I think that if he feels that that, the atmosphere is un, unbuildable, that, 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 that he's a man out of time, then maybe his, 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 not enthusiasm, but his energy for being elite at City might uh, wane rather than wax. And I think that's genuinely, Duncan, I think that's the crucial point that Arteta will, you know, have his uh, thermometer out about because if... If Pep were to feel that this was a club that where everybody right across the all the communities were like, yeah, Europe, Europe, dominate Europe again and again and again, I think he might even extend. But that's not my view right now. I think he will try to complete his contract, and that's probably Mikel Arteta's yardstick. It doesn't help them, uh, Graham, when the club's owners and the club itself um, continually seem to find themselves in conflict with the with UEFA and the European authorities regarding FFP, etc., um, and the legal cases that have been... Do you know, Ian, I'm not so sure time. culturally. In, in, uh, listen, okay, I accept those are there, and I accept those are, uh, those are um, a bugbear to those who run the club and own the club. But, but I, I don't necessarily agree about the concept I'm proposing, whereby if, if <laughs> UEFA become an object of anger for the squad and for the fans. And if the if that were to help the, the atmosphere that I, I'm a thousand percent certain Guardiola is trying to create, and he says so, he's, he's very open about it. Um, 
you can say, right, we'll show them, we'll win their tournament. You know, that, it can actually be, it can be a propulsion element towards going, right, you know, the fans go like, right, we'll do the anthem and we'll win the tournament from them. I think on a corporate level, your point's made and clear and I wouldn't contest it for one second. On, on a culture level, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure about that. Graham, you, you worked very closely through that period in which Pep Guardiola established himself as the most desirable coach in, in European world football. What do you feel about his wife leaving Manchester to move back to Barcelona in terms of the impact that could or does not have on, on his, his general life and um, his ability to coach um, with that change in his family circumstances? No, I wouldn't be an authority, Duncan. I, w- I wouldn't be an authority on that. I I, th- I think that, um, the, you know, Pep Guardiola at his leanest and meanest, meanest is a, 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 a machine of such intensity mm-hmm. um, that, for example, I, I, I can't imagine it undermining his... <laughs> his attention to detail, his desire to win things. And, I, I, you know, as somebody who's, who's lived that same situation myself because of, um, you know, various family demands, <laughs> if, if I was, to, you know, I, I don't have his qualities, but we're both human beings. <laughs> I, I found it in my situation, a, a drive to achievement, a drive to focus, a drive to, um, well, if life has to be like this, then damn sure the reason that's keeping me here, I'm going to excel at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, it's a jump for me. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like to say they're 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 all extremely special people. Um, you know, his wife and two of his daughters were in the arena when the bomb in Manchester went off. They didn't leave. Uh, I think a, a huge number of people. Um, in life, never mind football, um, who were subject to um, a near-death experience. Um, not only wouldn't necessarily have stayed in that city, but would have been quite justified in saying, I think we'll take this as a little um, celestial nudge in life to change to something else, and they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> they stayed. They stayed enthusiastically. They stayed completely tied to the city and to the club. So I... I Duncan, I, I, I just wouldn't. Uh, no way would I speculate on 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 what is um, happening in in Pep Guardiola's mind or or emotions. Just because that, that it's a very 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 short distance and easy um, journey between uh, Barcelona and Manchester, and I, I would struggle to say that. Um, I would struggle to feel competent to say anything more than that. Graham, what's been the response in Spain to City's sort of decline in terms of the league position this season so far? 11 points adrift of Liverpool, obviously. I'm sure that a lot of the media in Spain obviously keep an eye on uh, Pep's team and how they're performing. Analytically, and I don't think Spain's got anything um, of, of worth to say that's analytically better or different to 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 you know, the massive attention paid to City in the UK and Ireland. Um, I think that because um, because when many of those who print newspapers or edit newspapers or write right now 
were growing up, Liverpool were the dominant club. And then they were the, you know, the first genuinely Hispanified club. There were, you know, there were Spaniards elsewhere. But if you think about Morientes, followed by the various Spaniards, probably most notably Pepe Reina and Xavi Alonso and Rafa Benitez and Fernando Torres. Right now, there is a, not a bias, but a huge love-in for Liverpool in the media here. Absolutely gigantic. Um, there's an appreciation, there's a thirst for the brand of football. Um, I, I, if, if you want me to sum up what I read or hear most often when you see the highlights of, of Premier League games, um, the general tone here, and I would agree with it, is that you know a, a dynasty is extraordinarily hard to perpetuate, and that when City won two titles in a row for the first time any club's done that in a decade and were then massively afflicted by injuries. I think there's a, a gen, whether it be journalists or ex-coaches who comment on English football here or ex-footballers, there's a general perception that, yeah, <laughs> you know, that shit happens. If you, it, to, to keep a, a squad not only hungry enough to win three titles in a trot, but to, um, to stay mentally and physically totally fit is hard, but when you're, you know, when you're in the path of a, a runaway steam train like Liverpool are at the moment, then there's an appreciation rather than any deprecation of um, is, is does Pep Guardiola have his eye off the ball or is he making mistakes or blah blah blah. The, the general tone, which I underline again, I agree with, and I tip Liverpool. When I was working with our sponsors at the big interview in August, I took Liverpool to win the title, um, and and I believed it then. And, and I, while I think there are still extraordinary hurdles to overcome, um, whenever I go to the training ground or to the training camp in summer as well, you get you get a you you savor an atmosphere that you know I've I've only personally experienced. Twice before, once being a reporter in and around Fergie's United, and once being a reporter in and around Guardiola's Barcelona. There, there are other eras that could be comparable. Lippi Juventus. There are other eras, but when you go, you only have to sniff the air and think, "Yeah, this is this is really, really hard and special." And I think that that's the broad um, football media perspective from Spain that City are suffering huge amounts of injuries and still playing pretty exceptional football, but they're a little bit more vulnerable at a time when <laughs> Spain would say, our Liverpool are going like a runaway train. <laughs> I wonder if the same um, attitude when Rafa Benitez was moment. So uh, City, of course, are um, hosting Manchester United this weekend in the, the biggest yeah. match in, in the Premier League. Uh, Liverpool travelled to Bournemouth. Arsenal, in a real pickle, Duncan, uh, outplayed, outfought by Bo uh, Brighton Hove Albion um, at the Emirates on Thursday night. And perhaps more trouble on the horizon regarding their captain and star striker, I believe. Yeah, there's some information I have that um, Real Madrid have been looking at whether they can get Aubameyang out of Arsenal um, and have entered into discussions with his representatives to that effect. Uh, we know that Aubameyang's been stalling 
on extending his contract at Arsenal. We know he's um, one of the best paid players at the club. Um, and obviously, um, at present, he you could argue he's at a club that doesn't fit his performance um, levels on the field in terms of ability to put goals away. The interesting um, bit of information I have on this is that Real Madrid, I believe, are trying to float Luka Jovic into the deal. So their £60 million signing from Eintracht Frankfurt in the summer, who's, I think, scored just one goal in 11 appearances since arriving there. And um, Graham can tell us uh, about how uh, poorly he's fitted into the Madrid setup this season. But that would be, I guess, a proposal that would allow Jovic an opportunity at a different club, a, a restart to his career. It would bring um, Arsenal's wage bill down and uh, and solve the problem that Arsenal might have of a, of a disgruntled forward um, and a player who's you know been very prominent in their team. But if you have that player uh, in a difficult contractual situation. Um, the, the proposal that Madrid are putting to them is, you know, let's let's solve two problems here for both of us and uh, and readjust our squads. Whether Arsenal will bite on that, I think, will be dependent of not just on Aubameyang's stance, but also on who they bring in as the new manager. It's the oldest story in football, isn't it? Because you know, we we could we could all of us we could spend um, the entire next week's podcast on Alba and. and his tastes, his behaviour, how he chooses to live his life off the pitch, what he's like on the pitch, whether he's actually firing on all cylinders right now because he's not an elite team. But the older story in the book is you score against a team and, and they lust after you. And Albine, in two two pretty spectacular matches against uh, Real Madrid, a couple of seasons ago, scored three times. I genuinely think that having scored previously against them I get the season I think he's been um, 100% goal scorer in four or five matches against Grimmauld for Borussia Dortmund and when that happens people remember you always try to buy the people that do well against you and you're right um, the, the, the Grimmauld Christmas party the players Christmas dinner not party uh, was last night <laughs> bought Gareth Bale a golf club and they bought Luka Jovic a dictionary um, <laughs> he's, he's he's a young kid um, I think in my opinion um, at Real Madrid the, the, the timing was awful in that he is not, an, not a terrible footballer but he is principally a finisher he is somebody for whom service at Frankfurt I thought was was primordial it, 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 I, and if there's a development to come and better judges than me were to say he's, yeah he's, he's quite a good associative footballer as well you can get some of the creativity that you see in a truly great striker like Benzema um, or Suarez but he'll need time and time isn't a commodity that you get given at Real Madrid so he comes at a time of huge change uh, he comes at a time when um, there's a superfluity of attacking players where he's got to change culture, change language, and he is definitely in the, you know, caterpillar butterfly stage of his life. Whereby, if the supply is cut off, if he's not playing regularly, his confidence goes down, and and the wings are not shuttling the ball in him, which they weren't, as as was in the Bundesliga. Then it's almost guaranteed that you get him in a situation like he is right now, and they could either 
bet on him and say, it's fine. You know, nurture him. As Zidane was saying recently, said publicly, no, he's a guy who I approved, you know, it wasn't foisted on me, blah, 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 blah. And you can bet on him and say at his age, with his capacities, we keep him. Or if you want, and and I don't know, Duncan, your, your sources, but, but, you know, I can understand completely that at a time when Ben Summer is absolutely excelling, but he's their principal goal threat when they don't have Hazard in the team, goals come in dribs and drabs from other positions, but not with the level you're going to need to, to win La Liga, which I think Real Madrid will do this year, this season, and to win the Champions League, which I think they're outsiders for, but with Real Madrid, you never know. They need more goals, and Benzema is at an age now where um, Aulas at Lyon is, is openly saying, we want to start proceedings to bring him back at the end of his contract. We want him as soon as we can get him. Um, even though by his 30, um, I, I, can see the, I can see the line of thought, definitely. And um, if it comes off, I think Arsenal might just win a watch um, because Jovic has things which can make him stand out in the Premier League. And if he's given service, and if Arsenal show more uh, acuity about why they're buying a player um, than they have in, in well, certainly last summer's transfer market, which was, you know, well, barring maybe two deals, uh, Tierney included, was atrocious. Uh, a, net lo- a net loss in terms of quality and experience. Then, then from Duncan's line, I can see benefits to Arsenal, yeah. Another developing story in Madrid, Graham, is that the future of Diego Simeone at Atletico um, is a divorce on the horizon. And, and if so, he's been someone constantly linked to Premier League jobs. Um, it might be an opportune moment for him. I, I can't. Where's this come from? It's been... Well, and, and, and can I use the word pish on this podcast? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, if, you, if you've got a buzzer or something like that, you can just drill it out. But listen, if... if <laughs> I'll let you aren't going to get rid of Diego Simeone um, I argued last season that would it would be to his benefit that um, refreshing the challenge and the Inter project that Conte is now making good on a very similar coach a very similar person to Simeone would have been the right thing for him to do right now Atleti Atleti have earned I think 190 million euros over the last um three seasons in Champions League revenue thanks to what Simeone's achieved. Um, this season, they're already up by about in the region of 52 million. So what's that? I'm not great on figures, but in the region of 240-something million euros in in Champions League bonuses alone. Now, you, you, you don't sack that guy. Secondly, um, England is a real problem for me in he can't learn English. I know he's tried and tried. And I, many people, and he's a bright man too. Many people just don't have uh, linguistic facility. Italian and Spanish are so similar that that wasn't a problem for him. And it might be confidence. It might be attention span because while he's been trying to learn English, he's been one of these, you know, not all coaches. We, we use the word, I, I use the word intense a lot. Some people might think too much, but there are certain coaches who don't live quite the intensity that we know that uh, uh, Guardiola does or uh, Simeone does, Conti does. Anyway, the, the long and short is he hasn't been able to. Mono Borgos, his assistant, where I, and I sense a, dis, a, a, a sense a change in their relationship. 
Monoburgos English is very, very good. But I don't think it's enough to go to a foreign country where your second in command does all your communication because you lose something. You lose your ability to communicate directly. Never mind the media or your employers, the players, because neither you, really neither the media or the employers keep you in a job. It's the players. So I, I, I struggle, A, to see him moving to the Premier League. And B, if he does move to the Premier League, I, 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 I see an immense struggle for him. And not until he fits in every other aspect. But if you're asking me this question, but there's some numpty was talking about him taking over at Everton. Which no, is, which no, it wasn't that. Some, somebody on, a couple of times this week on social media, I've been asked that. And, and oh, equally, like, let's say, we, let's say we, we, we put a template down of what Arsenal need right now. And you, you brought some, and you, you, you two with your magical powers that both of you have, you gifted him um, better than rudimentary English. You'd still think it's the wrong place to go because at Arsenal, the corporate culture, the, 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 the club's football culture, it isn't right, isn't ready for Simeone. It's funny, isn't it, sometimes when you get the guy who seems to be the antidote to the football you're seeing on the pitch, but a club doesn't have the culture to cope with the typhoon that would occur when Ortega, well, the fitness coach, was brought in and Mono Burgos was brought in and, and Simeone took charge. So I'd, uh, I'd love that you could transpose what we've had here from Simeone into a top club in the Premier League because it would be bloody fascinating. But it, uh, Ian, I, I just don't see it happening. Yeah, I think Simeone personality football wise would be perfect antidote for what Arsenal you know need to correct right now in terms of mm. what you said about football culture the actual culture in the dressing room as well because of his strength of personality and discipline etc I think that club is desperate um, you know it, under Unai Emery he became a figure of fun to the players uh, I've heard stories about the they had a nickname for him Spongebob Squarepants because of the way he spoke you know that level of um Sort of disrespect towards your manager is never going to turn results. Whereas Simeone is someone who, you know, he just walks into the room and everyone suddenly is quiet and waits for him to speak. So anyway, but you're right. I don't see him going to Arsenal. I don't see who's going to go to mm. Arsenal right now in terms of sorting that out. Duncan, you've got some news for us regarding Watford and their search for a new head coach following the sacking of another Spanish boss, Kiki Sanchez-Flores. Yeah, we, we told you earlier uh, in the week that Watford had got themselves into a difficult position trying to find a replacement for Kiki Sanchez-Flores and had uh, made approaches to a few individuals and either decided not to appoint them or those individuals decided they didn't want to be appointed and that left them um, placing Hayden Mullins in charge of their first match um, post Sanchez Flores, which wasn't their original plan. What I can tell you is that I have information from uh, someone close to Javi Garcia that Watford were back in touch with Javi uh, and his representatives to ask whether he would consider returning to the club, having been sacked after, I think it was four games for this season. Um, my information is there is no chance of that happening. Garcia is not interested in going back after the way he was treated, um, having signed a long-term contract with the, the club. And on, on top of uh, that kind of amusing circumstance of going back to a manager you'd sacked um, only a few months ago, 
Watford are actually involved in a court case with Javi Garcia at present um, over their failure to pay his compensation package in full. So um, quite a quite a circumstance to go back and, and ask someone to manage you again, having just sacked him and also having not compensated him properly for that sacking um, when it was made. Lads, here's a quiz question that somebody told me I haven't checked out. But, so statistically, I hope I'm not wrong, but somebody offered me this quiz question um, during the week and said to me, only two clubs have saved themselves from relegation when they've got eight points at this stage of the season. One was the mid-90s Everton, which I suspect must have been Joe Royal. Um, and the other one was um, Sunderland. So uh, maybe there's a clue what Watford should do there. <laughs> Is Joe Royal available? <laughs> uh, I, I did name another club. Gustavo Poyet kept Sunderland up um, oh, yeah, from... Of a similar statistical um, position. Now, I don't know if if he... I, I think, you know, when you look at Watford right now, it's probably the case that you're arguing that much more of a gap, which is seven at the moment, on um, on safety. And and it's, it's goodbye. There's a reason only two clubs have ever saved themselves from this position. But... You, you also have to have half an eye to who'll take us up, who, who understands the championship, um, because with the safety payments and then, in theory, hypothetically, if you're, if you're planning laterally, who'll take us straight back up again? I, I think the appointment they make needs to have both of those concepts in mind, um, or at least I think that would be that would show wisdom, not by any means a white flag about you sign somebody now, um, who who knows the championship inside out and, and that's it. Uh, somebody who's got a chance of um, saying, yep, yeah, done this before. And then in the worst situation can say, yeah, understand what's coming over the next uh, 12 months. Who knows? Well, another former Brighton manager, uh, Chris Hutton fits that bill as well, Graham, in yeah, terms of yeah, yeah, understand yeah. the championship well, oh, and yeah, getting promoted. Uh, yeah, rather than putting, yeah, you're right. That, it's so that, that's the concept. I think, if 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 the Italian family that own Watford are smart, that that those characteristics are what they're looking for right now. Able to say, yeah, I can confront the remaining. I don't know how many games, twenty-one, twenty-two games. I don't know how many remain. <laughs> Excuse me, uh, with the possibility of saying, yeah, we'll sneak it. <laughs> Last day, we'll still be in the fight, and we'll we'll get a win and we'll stay up. But I'm ready for. I'm already. Um, experienced and able to make decisions that will bring us up in a year. That's what I guess um, you know. Southampton, Norwich, Watford, uh, Villa are all thinking about right now. West Ham included. Bloody hell! That that's the guidance I have from source at Watford mm. is that they they believe their squad is good enough to stay up, um, mm. and that, that's what they they want someone in who can make it happen this season. Maybe they should have kept him, Duncan. Eh? What do you reckon? <laughs> I don't. I don't think they. I think they made a big mistake getting rid of Javi Garcia. Yeah. I think. Um, he's a good and, coach. And, and yeah, he's a very good coach. He was respected by the players, and they kind of brought it on themselves because they made some signings that he didn't want, and were asking asking him to integrate them into a system which had been working very effectively for them the previous there's, season. There's a theme for you that Duncan's mentioning. I don't know, maybe, maybe you do this monthly, but 
the general public, however astute they are, are really unaware how often their own employers make a decent coach's job untenable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, absolutely. You know, the, it's, the headlines always say it's the coach. <laughs> Uh, but boy, oh, by the level of incompetence at football clubs surrounding the expertise that you need to have to be a good coach. Speaking of incompetence, uh, Duncan, I, I made a joke at the top of the pod about your darkened room from Wednesday, but you uh, did watch the United Spurs game. You were very impressed, weren't you, by what you saw? Yeah, it, um, look, I think that's the best performance from Manchester United Uh probably over the, the last season and a half. I think in terms of uh, dominating a football match and um, the intensity with which they played, I, I, I struggled to come up with a, a performance at that level, certainly against that quality of uh, opponents. Um, you know, I think people will say they got through against Paris Saint-Germain last season and, and that was the, the, the result that got Solskjaer um, secured his, his permanent contract. Um, you know, remember Rio Ferdinand and Gary Neville um, pushing the club to do that in the immediate aftermath of the game. But I think we forget how fortunate they were in that match, and they were, they were essentially outplayed by PSG for a lot of it, but kept scoring goals when the opportunities presented themselves and got that um, very late and uh, and dubious penalty that that actually got them through. But um, this match against Tottenham you could see the focus in the players. Um, they got their early goal. They, they stayed on the pedal um, for most of that first half. They, they got kicked in the teeth and that Tottenham got an equaliser against the run of play from a bit of individual brilliance. And then they went straight out in the, in the second half and scored again. And, and, um, and then, you know, as, as we've said in the podcast, as various coaches have said, that situation of being a goal up really suits the way Solskjaer has built this team because they, they defend deep and then they use their pace to attack on the counter. And um, and again, you go through Solskjaer's reign and the best results are coming against the top teams, which is interesting and interesting given that they play Manchester City this weekend. What I don't think is, I don't think it changes anything fundamental about him as a manager and uh, him being out, out of his depth in that role and uh, an inability to deliver those results against the teams you'd expect him to be beating. And, and that it comes down to quite a few of the same characteristics, which is he's built a team that, that needs to play on the counter-attack. And that's not the best way to play weaker sides in the Premier League, and, and the opponents know that. Um, and, he, well, Solskjaer ahead of that game was talking about his faith in the team and he said something along the lines of I believe this team can beat any opponent on any given day and I think that they showed that on Wednesday that they can rise to the occasion and obviously in that game there was the element of let's shove it down Jose Mourinho's face from several of the players I think it's not hard to extrapolate that Marcus Rashford felt he had something to prove in that game and we probably saw the best performance of his Manchester United career, certainly the best performance from him for, for some time. Um, but one game doesn't mean you have a manager and a setup that is going to achieve the goals of the club, which is to qualify Champions League and to get back towards competing at the top end of the Premier League. Lads, I know, you know, I know you didn't ask me, and I, I don't dispute the only phrase that I, I you know, I, I don't, I'm not competent to say, I don't. I can't agree with Duncan Ollie out of his depth because I don't know. 
either way. But when you look um, closely, the thing, one of the things that really fascinates me is that I think under Solskjaer, and it may just be because they're getting older, um, I noticed a distinct um, step forward in Scott McTominay. Um, I've noticed a, a distinct step forward in Axel Twinsebi. Um, I think Mason Greenwood is in the process of showing that he's going to be a really important, really exceptional footballer um, for uh, Manchester United. Um, I, I can't believe it's a simple coincidence that Dan James has taken to the Premier League with such ease and veracity of appetite unless there's something to do with the man who's coaching him. And while I think it's a really astute point and one that I recognise immediately when, Duncan, you talk about United not having the layers of um, strategy or tactics to, to to play beyond the fact that they're a pretty interesting counter-attack side. That's a point well made. Maybe that's about quality of personnel. And I'm because I don't have a dog in a fight, I'm enjoying watching the fact that while I suspect it at root level, um, Woodward is is kind of as tied to, to this coach as he's been to anybody because he's you know as as an appointer of coaches he's running out of lies if he was a cat he's like got 19 lies as far as I'm concerned and he's the wrong man to be in that position Woodward however watching it, it, it's not as if Alex Ferguson was having an apprenticeship at Manchester United and I'm not comparing Solskjaer to, to Ferguson in terms of um, you know the, the, the depth of abilities but I, I I don't mind watching Solskjaer cut his teeth because I'm not, not a United fan or sponsor. And I don't mind watching him cut his teeth with Carrot cutting his teeth at the moment. And I'm finding it an interesting process because if we want to judge black and white, um, would United be a stronger bet if they if they bought brilliantly three times, four times in the next market and appointed Pochettino, would they be a stronger bet? Then the answer is yes. But in terms of simply watching what we can discover Oli Soskar seems to have I must admit I'm finding this really an interesting watch uh, Yeah I, I agree I agree I agree with you Graham I, I think uh, McTominay two and Zebi both taking step forward so two and Zebi's not quite installed himself as a regular first team choice no, yet no, um, no. And, it, and Mason Greenwood is a serious talent um, so uh, I think it helps him that Solskjaer is there to mentor that because Solskjaer has put a lot of focus on I'm going to build with youth, I'm going to build with younger players, I'm going to, going to push that academy line. So it helps these younger players because they're giving the opportunity to play. But the physical training, which is causing a lot of muscular injuries and has done for the uh, best part of a year now, um, the in-game management of matches is poor. He has issues with several senior players in that squad because of man management. The overall package, while I agree with you, it has helped the younger players, um, mm-hmm. the overall package isn't where it should be for a club of those resources. And that's mm-hmm. that's my assessment from and talking to a lot of people who are working with Solskjaer and um, and and you know you talk to senior players who are working with them and they just don't see him of being the level of coach that they are used to mm-hmm. um, having worked with through, you know, quite starry careers in, in some cases. Yeah, some of the results back that theme, yeah. Well, two two draws before the Spurs game, two draws with newly promoted sides um, were very lacklustre. Um, mm-hmm. 
I'm kind of reminded of what Jose Mourinho used to say about Ar- Arsene Wenger at Arsenal. Um, he used to say, well, if my job was as easy as that, all that, you know, bringing young players through, but it being enough not to win trophies and certainly not win the, the, the league for 10 years um, and make Champions League for every season, then, you know, it'd be lovely. That'd be a lovely job because I could just relax and you know, not have to worry about winning trophies, but my job's yeah, all about winning the, trophies. The, the, the comparison isn't, isn't, isn't fair because at Arsenal, they set up this, um, you know, really pathetic safety bubble of just about all the senior people agreeing that if they got top four, that was enough. That was a, that was a, strategy is and and because it caused rust they're still suffering the detriment now Manchester United they're all flapping about flailing around going well what do we do what do we do it's like Spike Milligan eh? what, what are we going to do now if you ever watch Q8 and I think that <laughs> the idea that there's a culture at Manchester United where they've just said ah well it'll be fine if we sit top four and let's emulate what Arsenal did for six or eight years and make some money that's, that's not right the owner's just want to see the money coming in. Woodward wants to see his bonuses and wants to remain in control. Aside from that, I think there's a culture at Manchester United about how the hell do we get out of this situation, become competitive again? And you're you're right, you're right. I, w- I wasn't being complacent about it. it's good enough for Manchester United simply to bring two young players. I, I just, you know, at, at the moment, the only way that United are are reported, in my opinion, is crisis club. When is Solskjaer sacked? Uh, and 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 a spotlight determinedly and correctly on the fact that their points total and the way in which they seem to either run out of energy or, or like competitive energy or to capitulate against, as Duncan said, sides that don't want to play and don't want to let them play uh, counter-attacking football. Th- these are really serious issues. And if, if I were a United fan, I'd be spewing right now. But standing back and watching it and, and having, like I say, no dog in a fight I just find them much more, um, m- much more fascinating than simply the, the the headlines that I'm reading all the time. And um, Duncan's talked about access and to people who know. I'd really, really, if there was a club I could pick right now, um, I'd really like to be you know, at Carrington on the training pitch, just invisible and watching and learning, um, because there is a small, small flicker of hope. That what we're beginning to see is is a coaching apprenticeship getting better and changing, and that with um, you know, market work hasn't been great. I don't think with three or four really good signings, you know, maybe like we see a turning of the corner. I think I think the phrase you used about Arsenal is important here when you you talked about the bubble, the safety bubble they created for themselves, and I think that's the really big concern at Manchester United is not yeah, Solskjaer. That. It, yeah. It's that the board. And they've now done this on record. They're talking about it taking three, four, five, six transfer windows to solve the problems and get them at a level. You know, they yeah. use the phrase cultural reboot and X factor players. And, and it's it's going to take us multiple years to get back to the level of just competing for the Premier League title. And that's, uh, for me, I, I think that's an unprecedented um, safety bubble to be creating at a club of their financial resource because when Arsenal did it, they did it to protect themselves because they knew they um, they had the stadium to pay off and they they didn't they they couldn't make that blatant to the fans initially so they sold this story of we're we're going for youth and and we're gonna we're gonna play the Arsenal way and and you're right um, they haven't recovered from that decision to go down that line. Um, 
And that, for me, is the biggest risk for Manchester United, that people in charge seem to think that that's an appropriate stance to take when they have the resources to, uh, to change things on a much more rapid basis than that. So I'd like to ask you both for your thoughts on tomorrow's derby. Uh, it's a Saturday, of course, uh, Manchester City versus Manchester United. How do you think the game will go? And if you want, you can even throw in a prediction. Graham, why don't you give us your opinion first? How do I think the derby will go? That's the question. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have a good deal of faith that City are only moderately off the pace. I think that they're, the fact that they're, that they're infected by a big game mentality, I think that they are extremely trustworthy about their attitude and their intelligence. Um, so I favour City. Um, I do think that there, there are two elements that, that make me slightly cautious. One, Darby's in general tend to be crazy. And two, I really uh, back what Duncan said there about the general pattern with United is that when a big arrival um, is, is, is in front of them, home or away, there is tightening of attitude. There is a raising of attitude amongst the younger ones, and there is a a, a, a mentality. I, I don't know if it's if it's just like Pavlovian uh, amongst the, the senior members of the squad. In that, I fully, fully expect this to be um, something that United um, have the, have the right approach to. They they don't have the same talent on the pitch. They should lose. I think that's simple. I think on balance they might lose. But I think if you go back to Duncan's point, you know, City will try to um, press. They'll try to possess the ball, possess the game. There, there is definitely room for the things that United do do well uh, to flourish. And I think that United probably have slightly more of their key players available to them. And as such, you know, a draw wouldn't shock me. City should be favourites. Um, but the, 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 the damage that is, I think it is underestimated, because I still think in England, it's open season on Pep whenever, you get the chance, whenever they get the chance. I think there is a, a, a significant love-in with Klopp, which I fully understand, and a slight degree of Pep's too uppity. But I think the media coverage has generally, has not sufficiently admitted the damage that's been done to City by their injuries. Um, I thought they were, I thought they were really fabulous at, at, at Burnley. Um, the quality of the goals, the quality of Rodri's performance tell me that it, it should be a City win. Um, but if you told me right now you had a crystal ball and you knew it was going to be a draw, then I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't fall over in shock. But without doing United down, City remain a pretty exceptional team. Duncan? I think there, there are three elements to why City are off the pace of uh, the incredible pace that they, they've held over the last two seasons. One, obviously the defensive injuries, um, which has forced them to reshuffle in midfield. Two, Leroy Zani, who... Um, put incredible numbers, creative numbers up um, for City last season, despite um, not being a regular first 
choice for Guardiola because of issues over his contract and uh, of his attitude around the training ground. Um, and Zani is the guy who makes the difference against uh, some of these packed defences they come up against. He has that extra bit of pace which allows him to get in behind and create opportunities that no one else in that squad does. And I think the third thing is they had a horrendous pre-season. Um, Guardiola was very unhappy with the way that went. They were in China. They had their flight delayed, I think, twice before um, they went out there. They got it there. It was cancelled, wasn't it, Duncan? It, 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 they couldn't get there and it was all in the threat of being cancelled. Then it was back on again. It, it, you're right, yeah. it was Keystone Cops, wasn't it? And, and they went there and <laughs> what I'm told is... All the commercial engagements for, that have been for a club that's for them. sponsored by an airline that does seem a little bit, you know, <laughs> lack, lack, lackluster. So, so they went out there, and all the commercial arrangements that had been in the original plan were were squeezed back into a shorter space of time, <laughs> there, which, yeah. which reduced the training um, yeah. time yeah. available to Guardiola, and and I, and they feel that they didn't get the fitness levels and the preparation levels the way they would normally have them in preseason, yeah. and that has affected them through this season. And yeah, well they do said. they they have been getting more injuries this season than uh, normal and uh, some muscular injuries and that's what happens in, in these circumstances it's uh, it's difficult to get to get things right on an international tour especially an international tour in Asia in the best of circumstances when you rip up the schedule uh, and restart it, it, you get this kind of effect and, and we're talking about such tight margins at the top of the Premier League these days that um, it's hard yeah. them um, as for the game, I think it's set up well for for Manchester United for the you know the reasons I've already discussed. Um, City have that weakness in defence. United's strength is on the counter attack. City will control the ball. They will take the ball to United. If United can score the first goal on the break, then they're pretty good at sitting in deep and uh, and then and hoping to get another one. So it's a chance for them to get two big results in a row. City are the better players and they've got much more tactical variation to them um, and there, I think the one thing you have to say is it's been a long time since Manchester United have put together two very big results in a row and I wonder I'm intrigued to see how they perform in the game because they are capable of stepping up for individual matches particularly these big matches but I want to see if they can get themselves to the level of focus and intensity they had on Wednesday night again twice in a week um, for two very big games. And that, that's going to be kind of a, an important test of where Solskjaer has got the squad. Um, and, you know, he talks a lot about their immaturity and talks a lot about not being able to f- see out games. And th- I think this is another element of maturity in a football team is being able to deliver top performances in consecutive matches and particularly in consecutive matches against top opponents. So drawing from all that I would say I think City will win it well this is Friday's Transfer Window podcast which means we end with the quick fire round the round of legends and of course two of them are here today we're going to take inspiration from the fact that the Arsenal captain Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang took what they call in tennis a comfort break six minutes from time when Arsenal were chasing a 2-1 uh, deficit to Brighton Hove Albion he was off the pitch for over three minutes uh, in the last six before added time. Um, it was 
told by uh, Freddie Lindbergh afterwards that he just needed to go. Um, the only disappointing thing was that instead of going uh, back on the pitch with a number two shirt on, he came back out with his usual 14. Um, so yeah. I'm going to ask the oh, I'm yeah. gonna ask, I'm going to ask the guys. This is what Malcolm Muggridge complained about when Life of Brian was released. He predicted that broadcast standards would go down, and boy, was he right. Oh, where's Mary White is when you need her? Um, so I'm going to ask you two um, in the quickfire round, what reason is justified for you to leave the field when your team is losing and you're required to score a goal, and what uh, is not justified? <laughs> I'll give you your answer. I played in the Glasgow Amateur Leagues uh, and one Sunday we were playing after a brutal heavy um, uh, Steamboats 11, Allen Hepworth 11. And we, it, the Saturday night had been brutal and long and we were fairly hungover. We were playing in this game where we were playing against a team of outright meds. And just by chance, we had two cops in our team and uh, the referee was a cop. And I don't know if, if perchance there was some sort of brotherly love between the referee and, and our team, but the, the, the Neds were thugs and we were, we were struggling to keep in the game. And there was a couple of decisions that went our way <laughs> until one of their players lost his temper. <laughs> And what I think your criterion was when you're one nil down. We were sat, we might have, but we were equal or a goal behind. And and this this fella on their side got sent off. <laughs> and he he went off to the side of the pitch where we didn't know his car was parked. And he, he got his car and drove at us. And then <laughs> it, 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 it became it became clear that his target was the referee, not us. And. Um, he hadn't known the ref was a cop and there were two cops on our side. So when he stopped, having skidded across the pitch, narrowly missed the ref, we got out and like, hey, go out. He got nicked on the spot and, <laughs> and uh, accidentally pummeled as well. Luckily, there was no nightsticks involved. But I, I, I would take that as been a decent reason to, to, to leave the pitch when the team is 1-0 down, when there's a, a Ford Cavalier hurtling towards you on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Right or wrong? Uh, I think that's... I, I'll tell you what, I've got one similar to that. Uh, I'll be very quick telling it. Um, playing, Go on up and wish all you would have, yeah. Play, play, playing for the Scotsman team against the pub team in Edinburgh. Uh, referee sends their striker off. He's a big burly lad. Um, sends him off. We're all waiting for the uh, free kick to be taken from our box when all of a sudden the guy runs back onto the pitch and starts lamping the ref on the side of the head on his ear. <laughs> At which point his own players ran up and gave him a right good kicking on the pitch and then carried him off and threw him into the dressing room. I think that's a justifiable reason for leaving the pitch. Ah, Scottish football. I know. Duncan, come on, you've got to beat those two. I, I'm just going to say, if, um, if if the legendary Graham Hunter was suffering from a hangover uh, playing football, then it must have been one hell of a night <laughs> that preceded it. <laughs> it was it was a it was a broad hangover. I'm not I'm not claiming to have been suffering the worst, but uh, I managed to get it the way of the Ford Cavalier. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I love the way you actually remember even the brand. Why wouldn't I remember? What are you joking? I offered you a car driven at you at 35 miles an hour on a football pitch. Why wouldn't I remember? The only thing is it's a Vauxhall Cavalier, not a Ford. Oh, whatever. <laughs> if you know well, your It's a Cavalier. He said Cavalier, and before I ran, I turned to a football said, that's a fairly Cavalier approach to football right enough. <laughs> oh, now, Malcolm Muggridge yourself. 
I wanted to bother them. It was an iron bar. Do you want to have a crack at it, Duncan, or are you? I I think I I think there are only three reasons, um, acceptable (laughs) reasons, for leaving a football field in the match as a professional footballer um, with when your team chasing a goal, and they would be birth, uh, marriage, and death. And you should have had the marriage (laughs) organised in advance anyway. Well, it can't be taxes, otherwise we'd have a whole host of uh, lovely football players. players. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so be, 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 BMTD, it's a whole new style of perversion. <laughs> First well, marriage is death and taxes. We have um, certainly, uh, I'd say, kicked the arse out of it today, boys. Uh, <laughs> Since we're uh, having these conversations, uh, I'd like to thank Graham Hunter for uh, coming on and uh, giving no, us cavalier no tales of. of can uh, I close? Can I close as I always do? How did you get this number? Don't call me at work. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try not to, but we will say uh, to all our listeners: if you haven't heard the big interview, or if you have, uh, it's at GH Podcast. Uh, they're always superb. It's basically footballers telling their stories to Graham Hunter. Uh, you'd also see him on the Liga TV and if you want you can see him on Twitter uh, at Bumper Graham if you want to continue the debate after the pod and of course many of you do then please get in touch at Transfer Podcast and at Duncan Castles or at Garbo SJ that's it for today's uh, edition of the Transfer Window we shall see you on Monday thanks for listening (laughs) 